1: That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad.
0: Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, New Living Translation Hello. I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you as we continue our series we've called Truth and Proof. This series is all about helping our listeners think carefully about their faith. Specifically, we want people to understand that the Christian faith is not a belief system that requires its followers to abandon their brains when they surrender their hearts to Jesus. Far from it. Jesus told his followers that they were supposed to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Yet all too often today we are told that we must choose between faith and reason, or between faith and science. But that's a false dichotomy. And today, to help us explore the solid foundation of logic and reason that supports Christianity, we have R.D. Fierro in the studio. R.D. is an author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. On Anchored by Truth, We often cover the fact that the world's demand is not only unnecessary, but is also unreasonable, don't we?
2: Well, we certainly do. And the reason we do is because that demand gets circulated almost continually in the popular media and in the popular culture. And even many Christians are taken in by the demand and believe that they have to respond to it. The idea that people must abandon their confidence in logic, reason, and science if they want to be a faithful and devout Christian, well, that's practically a pillar of every show that purports to discuss issues that pertain to the origin of the world and the beginning of the cosmos. That demand that it's either a choice between faith or reason has become such a staple of modern philosophy that it really serves as a great illustration of the old aphorism that if you tell a lie often enough, people will begin to accept that lie as the truth. Our culture has lost sight almost completely of the fact that some of the greatest minds of the last 2,000 years, including some of the greatest scientists of all times, were very faithful and devout Christians.
0: The point is that many people today regard Christians as being almost simple-minded, but nothing could be further from the truth.
2: I agree. You know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, we lived in a culture that readily accepted Christianity, even if there were individuals who did not. 50 years ago, you would even find some support for the Christian worldview that was taught in U.S. schools because the truth of Christianity was so widely accepted. But those days are long behind us, and our broader culture today is not only not receptive to Christianity, but there are many parts of it that are outright intolerant to it. Some elements of our society are vehemently hostile to Christianity.
0: But the good news is that it does not have to be that way, does it? We have the truth on our side. But we must equip ourselves to be able to present that truth. It is not up to us to change anyone's heart. That's God's job. Our job is just to be able to witness to the truth in gentle and respectful ways.
2: Yes. The good news, the really good news, is that truth is on our side. And that's what we've been reviewing in this series. And we called this series Truth and Proof because the very first task that we undertook in this series was to demonstrate that absolute truth exists. And then we have been proceeding to show the lines of reasoning that support the proof of that truth.
0: And many of the ideas that we've been discussing fall within the larger umbrella of what is termed apologetics. Simply put, apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. And thus far in our series, we have gone over two apologetic approaches, a metaphysical approach to apologetics and a cosmological approach to apologetics. And anyone who would like to review those approaches in detail can simply listen to earlier versions of the Truth and Proof series from their favorite podcast app. Today's lesson is the eighth in the series, and we anticipate that there will be two more episodes in this series after today's. That will make a total of ten episodes in the Truth and Proof series. So today, we want to move on to another apologetic approach. Right.
2: The teleological argument. Now, in our last couple of sessions, we discussed the cosmological argument for the existence of God. The cosmological argument is normally the first of the most commonly used arguments to demonstrate the existence of God. But the cosmological argument is probably not the one that is most seen in the media or in books or even in casual conversation. The argument that you're most likely to hear for the existence of God that's in popular books or in conversation is called technically the teleological argument and it's sometimes known as the argument from intelligent design. Teleological comes from the Greek word telos, meaning end or purpose. In a very brief form, the teleological argument reasons from the existence of design in our cosmos to an intelligent designer. So it could be stated in short form in this way. All designs imply a designer. There is great design within the universe, therefore there must be a great designer of the universe. A gentleman named Norman Geisler wrote a magnificent book that's called the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, and Geisler put the argument this way, Anytime we have seen a complex design, we know by previous experience that it came from the mind of a designer. Watches imply watchmakers. Buildings imply architects. Paintings imply artists and coded messages imply an intelligent sender.
0: Geisler went on to say, quote, The greater the design, the greater the designer. Beavers make log dams, but they have never constructed anything like the Golden Gate Bridge. A thousand monkeys sitting at typewriters for millions of years would never produce Hamlet by accident. Shakespeare did it on the first try. The more complex the design, the greater the intelligence required to produce it,
2: Well, having written a few things myself, I'm not sure if Shakespeare necessarily produced Hamlet on the very first try, but it certainly didn't take him millions or thousands or hundreds of years to write Hamlet. The point is that only an intelligent being can form letters into words, words into sentences, sentences into paragraphs, paragraphs into books, and books into libraries. Yet the complexity of Hamlet is minuscule when it's compared to the genetic code. The genetic code contained in one amoeba equals the amount of information in a thousand sets of encyclopedias. There is no such thing as simple life where we see the evidence of incredibly sophisticated and complicated design in the genetic code, but we also see that same evidence in the macro-universe of the solar system, the stars, and the
0: galaxies. There is a principle that's sometimes referred to as the Anthropic Principle. The Anthropic Principle states that the universe was fitted for the very first moment of its existence for the emergence of life in general, and human life in particular. If there were even the slightest variation in the conditions of the universe, even to a small degree, no life of any kind would exist. In order for life to be present, there is an incredibly restrictive set of demands that must be present in the universe. And they are. All of our empirical observations tell us this. Not only does the scientific evidence point to a beginning of the cosmos, but it points to a very sophisticated high tuning of the universe from the very beginning that makes human life possible.
2: And this evidence of design is very well recognized by scientists. There's an astrophysicist named Robert Dick who said, and I'm quoting now, that in fact it may be necessary for the universe to have the enormous size and complexity which modern astronomy has revealed in order for the Earth to be a possible habitation for living beings. And an astronomer, Alan Sandage, stated that, and again I'm quoting Alan Sandage now, the world is too complicated in all of its parts to be due to chance alone. I am convinced that the existence of life, with all its order in each of its organisms, is simply too well put together. Each part of a living thing depends on all the other parts to function. How does each part know? The more one learns, the more unbelievable it becomes unless there is some kind of organizing principle, an architect. And that's the end of the quote from astronomer Alan Sandage.
0: Even Stephen Hawking, who was not a friend of Christianity, said, There may only be a small number of laws which are self-consistent and which lead to complicated beings like ourselves who can ask the question, What is the nature of God? And Albert Einstein seems to have almost anticipated Hawking's question when he wrote, quote, The harmony of natural law reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systemic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection, unquote.
2: And writer, broadcaster, professor, astrobiologist and cosmologist, and physicist Paul Davies, typically indicates his religious belief as undecided, wrote in 1989, There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming.
0: But understandably, and predictably, just because the universe contains an abundance of evidence of being designed, there are those who don't accept that testimony of evidence. The arguments against intelligent design come from those who don't believe in an intelligent designer. For them, the answer to the question of how things came to be as they are is, of course, evolution. One point of Charles Darwin's work was to establish that random, purposeless, natural processes can substitute for intelligent design. Darwin wrote in The Origin of the Species that he was convinced that the natural selection was the main mechanism responsible for the evolution of life from simple forms to complex forms.
2: And writer and Oxford zoologist Richard Dawkins, who's probably one of the world's most militant atheists, begins his book that he entitled The Blind Watchmaker with the statement, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, Dawkins' book title, The Blind Watchmaker, was challenging the work of William Paley, and Paley was building his arguments on the work of Socrates, Plato, Philo, and Aquinas, who all believed that the complexity of the world implied a great designer. Paley had intensively studied the physical world of his day for evidence of purpose. And so Paley concluded that a designing intelligence was reasonable for the features of the natural world, and he identified this designing intelligence as the god of Christianity. Paley's argument for design was published in 1802 under a book entitled Natural Theology, Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity, Collected from the Appearances of Nature. Paley's work continues to remain a foundational pillar in the debate over intelligent design.
0: Dawkins and Tufts philosopher-sociologist Daniel Dennett are among the most visible, most vocal, and most angry of the atheists who have, in the last few decades, led an attack on the existence of God. Dawkins' attitudes are summarized in this statement recorded in the April 9, 1989 New York Times, quote, It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, Some people have observed that as a scientist, Dawkins is mediocre, but as an apologist for atheism, he is unparalleled. So that opens up the question, why do so many prominent scientists resist and reject God?
2: Well, simply put, scientists in our day and age have a profound bias toward materialism. In other words, in their worldview, the only thing that exists is matter. Now, of course, this is not true of all scientists by any means. There are a great many fine, competent scientists who are not only outstanding scientists in their own fields, but also strong biblical creationists. But in this case, the exception pretty much proves the rule. And one of the most amazing things about this situation is that science itself, which is the objective pursuit, the acquisition of knowledge about our universe through disciplined study, does not require that an individual be a philosophical materialist. But most scientists are philosophical materialists, either by their own individual bias or because of the indoctrination they receive through the education system. And even more amazingly, most of these scientists don't recognize that the bias they had is completely unnecessary for scientific purposes. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read that quote that we have from the Harvard evolutionary biologist and geneticist, Richard Lewontin.
0: Lewontin wrote, quote, We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failures to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door, unquote.
2: So, let's compare Lewontin's statement with the statement that we heard earlier from the opening of Richard Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker. Dawkins said biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So Dawkins acknowledges that the evidence for design exists in nature. He just doesn't like the conclusion where that evidence leads him. So Dawkins makes an observation about the evidence. He even acknowledges where it leads, but then he changes direction because he doesn't like the destination. Lewontin simply says out loud the forbidden truth that this change of direction isn't necessary according to the rules of science. Rather, it comes about because the individual person or persons just don't like the thought that the presence of design in nature also means the presence of a designer. So instead of acknowledging that designer, the materialist, the scientist, adopts conventions and rules that exclude in Lewontin's words, a divine foot in the door.
0: Yikes! I don't know whether that's sad, scary, or both. Well, probably
2: both. But at a minimum, the one thing that such an a priori commitment is not is, quote, scientific. And a great many scientists have recognized this. For instance, Michael Denton wrote a book in 1985 entitled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis and published the year before Dawkins published his Blind Watchmaker. Well, those books sort of set off a chain reaction of other books, where the debate about the presence of design in nature began to receive an awful lot of attention in the popular culture.
0: For instance, in 1991, Philip Johnson wrote a book called Darwin on Trial. Johnson's book was so compelling that the debate about design in nature and supernatural designer was forever changed. Johnson wrote, quote, "In brief, what makes me a critic of evolution is that I distinguish between naturalistic philosophy and empirical science, and oppose the former when it comes cloaked in the authority of the latter." Unquote. Johnson's critics retreated into the defense posture of quote, "specialized scientific knowledge." Unquote but many of those were the same champions of evolution who had previously argued for its simplicity. Johnson answered the critics in 1995 with Reason in the Balance, subtitled The Case Against Naturalism in Science, Law, and Education. And
2: Johnson quickly gained the support from a biochemist named Michael Behe, who wrote Darwin's Black Box in 1996. Now, Behe explained that the intricate interactions of cellular components and molecular mechanisms showed that all biological systems are irreducibly complex. And this means that all biological systems are, and I'm quoting, composed of several well-matched, interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, wherein the removal of any one of those parts causes the system to cease functioning. Close quote. So, Behe asserted that any irreducibly complex system cannot be produced by the Darwinian mechanism of slight successive modifications of a precursor, because any precursor to that biological system would be, by definition, non-functional.
0: So, when Behe pointed out that the irreducibly complex systems could not be produced by a series of minor changes in a biological organism he was effectively pointing out that Darwin's criticism of his own theory was valid. In The Origin of the Species, Darwin wrote a chapter entitled Difficulties of the Theory. It happened to be chapter 6. In that chapter, Darwin offered some comments on the evolution of the eye, which had been widely quoted since he wrote them. Darwin said this about his own theory. Now remember, this is Charles Darwin talking about his own conclusion that the eye could have evolved through a Darwinian-type series of steps. Darwin wrote, quote, To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree, Unquote.
2: And Darwin went on to give an explanation of how he thought the vision could have happened. But Behe took Darwin's argument apart by showing that Darwin speculated on how the eye and vision might have happened. But Darwin never considered the most fundamental question. Not how it might have happened, but how did vision happen? Darwin looked only at the anatomy, because that's all he could look at in the 19th century. Darwin had no knowledge of biochemistry as we have it today. But in his book, Behe went through the dozens of biochemical changes that are involved in a photon of light striking a retina, and then that enabling the brain to form an image of an object. So after walking us through the very complicated biochemistry of vision, Behe says this, and I'm quoting, To Darwin, vision was a black box. But after the cumulative hard work of many biochemists, we are now approaching answers to the question of sight. Each of the anatomical steps and structures that Darwin thought were so simple actually involves staggeringly complicated biochemical processes that cannot be papered over with rhetoric. Adam is, quite simply, irrelevant to the question of whether evolution could take place on the molecular level. So is the fossil record. Neither do the patterns of biogeography matter, nor those of population biology, nor the traditional theory for rudimentary organs or species abundance. Until recently, however, evolutionary biologists could be unconcerned with the molecular details of life because so little was known about them. Now the black box of the cell has been opened, and the infinitesimal world that stands revealed must be explained. Again, that's a quote from Michael Behe in his book, Darwin's Black Box.
0: So what Behe was pointing out was that the appearance of design in nature wasn't just apparent in the anatomical structures that we can see, that Darwin could see, but in the very molecular chemistry that comprises those structures. Again, design isn't just present in the big structures of the universe, the stars and the galaxies, but even in the very tiniest little ones. And how can you have design anywhere at that level without a designer? You can't.
2: Right. And if vision is a dramatic example of a biological system that can't arise in the absence of design, the blood clotting system that is present, well, that's even more dramatic. For a clot to form over a cut and stop an animal from bleeding to death, even more biomolecular steps are involved that are involved in producing vision. But the blood clotting system only works as a system. You miss one step and clots never form. The blood clotting system had to be designed. It could not arise in an evolutionary fashion because any animal that didn't have the entire blood clotting system would die before it could ever randomly pass along any of its genes.
0: Well, before we close for today, let's mention one more book that participated in the design debate a mathematician and philosopher, William Dembski, published the book The Design Inference in 1998. Dembski saw a possible flaw in Behe's work. So, he strengthened the concept of irreducible complexity to include a minimal complexity condition stating that, quote, this condition says that the system cannot be simplified and still retain the level of function needed for selective advantage, unquote. Dembski refined the intelligent design as the science that studies signs of design, and he notes that intelligence leaves behind a characteristic trademark or signature, what he calls specified complexity.
2: Right. Dembski and others have looked for signs ranging from the microscopic to the telescopic. And as we mentioned at the start of today's episode, not only do biological systems show the signs of intelligent design, But the universe in general displays what we talked about, the anthropic principle. That the cosmos is precisely designed for the emergence and the sustenance of life, and especially human life on Earth. In the simplest terms, the cosmos gives evidence of design.
0: The irresistible conclusion from this line of reasoning is that the evidence of design is present throughout the universe. It's present in the cosmos. It's present in the cell. It's present in our consciousness. We cannot have design anywhere without a designer. And in the universe, you just don't have design in a few places. It has it everywhere.
2: Right. In a biochemist, atheist, and co-discoverer of DNA, the late Francis Crick began studying biochemistry in the 1940s as a way to disprove the existence of God. But in fact, what Crick discovered was that there was an irreducibly complex information system at the heart of all life, DNA. Crick was a phenomenal scientist, but he was wrong about God. His materialistic presuppositions prevented him from acknowledging the very truth that his own work pointed out. But this shouldn't surprise us. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 has been pointing out this problem with human nature for over 2,000 years.
0: That verse says, quote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse, unquote. Crick believed there is no God, but God has the final word. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, quote, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, we hope everyone will join us next time as we continue this fascinating discussion about the arguments and evidence that demonstrates that there's a firm basis in logic and reason for our Christian faith. This sounds like a good time to go to God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for all those around the world who suffer for their faith we should all take time to regularly pray for God's mercy and favor to be with them.
1: Prayer for Persecuted Christians Father of comfort and deliverance, you are a merciful God and you have abundant compassion for those who suffer and are afflicted. Lord, we come to you to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who are being oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, and killed, because they belong to you. We grieve for them, and we cry out to you on their behalf. We know that you will never leave or forsake any of your children, and that you know their sorrows better than we will ever know them. Yet we cannot remain silent, and so we plead with you to grant healing and release for them all. Help us to know what we can do to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves, and give us wisdom to know how we can help them. Help us to be generous with financial support, persistent in prayer, and committed to their cause. Cause our national leaders to act to improve their lot in accordance with your will. Raise up leaders who are willing to stand for you without compromise or flinching. We pray that you would cause the release and delivery of those whom you would have delivered. For those who remain in suffering, be a powerful presence in their lives. Grant them the peace that can only come from your special touch. We long for the day when all your people will stand united at your feet, and where the tribulations of this world will be far behind. We and all your people pray, now and always, only in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where...
2: We're not perfect, but our bosses.